It's about two in the morning. We're in a nightclub in Chicago at the end of another engagement for the most celebrated figure in the history of jazz, uh, Louis Armstrong, whose influence is manifold so many ways. The effect he's had on musicians who followed his innovations in the matter of singing jazz, in which the lyrics are secondary to the feeling. If we may think back, Mr. Armstrong, to a time some six years ago, it's now 1962. Mm -hmm. 1956, there was a period when you were on a plane and you landed at Accra, Ghana. That's right, I remember that time. And it was almost the beginning of a new cycle, the end of one. What was your feelings in, when you came to Ghana? That was a great feeling, I'll tell you that, because uh, I never saw so many people gather at one time before that, you know, and uh, the way they reacted to our music and everything. I thought it was great. And we've been there twice, you know. And they had the second, heard. The second time was. It was through was the recordings they knew of you. Through well, the yeah, records. Yeah. They knew of you there. All over Africa. But Ghana was the first place for women. I think of Ghana because of the. And the lips had. It was the first of the, uh, of the new countries, of the new independent countries of Africa that yes, you visited. Yes, it was. Now, in your travels through this continent, I'm thinking, in all the different countries, the different dialects and cultures there, they all knew of jazz, of your music, didn't they? That's all. How would you explain that? Well, I mean, throughout those days, for one hour, it's just like American, I mean, the way they appreciated the jazz. At the time, uh, that vocalist I had, she made that leap in the air, and they went wild. <laughs> Did you find Broke it up. <laughs> you know, in some of the high life music, the high life music of Ghana? Mm, I like. Do you find uh, this stem? I wonder. I wonder w which way it worked. Did it stem from the jazz of America? No, I think we we copied it from them. And that beat, tom toms, drum beats, and all. That. I realized when I went down there that it was copied from them. So the rhythms, the yeah. complicated rhythms in African in origin so. when yeah. the slaves came here originally brought the, the particular the music with them. So when, you, got it. so when you went back then, it was almost uh, as though a circle was completed. Music came there and you were bringing it brought back. Brought me back to generations. I was a kid in Africa, uh, in New Orleans. I could see so many things that was brought from Africa all over the world. When you were a small boy, you remembered this, the... Yeah, I remember it brought back memories. And so when you went back there, did you see some of the dances that the people were doing? Some of the ceremonials and dances you had... Was, yeah. did, was there a similarity? You sensed the, the similar rhythms they to it. do that first, all at the airport and everything. Every time we got in, got in the country, there was always a tribe there. They'd do the dance and play for some time. I'd sit in with them, They'd play the saints. Speak, a lot of them speak English. <laughs> Be surprised, you know. In your travels through the different countries, did you find different reactions? Say Nigeria or Sierra Leone? No. Or in other. They the reaction was basically the same. The same, I mean. Yeah. Even more. Uh, Beaupoville um, and everything. The greatest reception in my life. I understand that the fighting stopped when you came there. 
in Leopold. Yeah, there wasn't no fight in the four days reason. There's a moral to this somewhere, isn't there, about the music? I know you're a great believer in music as a bringer of understanding among the yeah. peoples of the world. I think so. I was very much impressed with the whole tour. You in, in Japan, I'm thinking about in Japan, in 1954, I think, around when you were in Japan. Hmm. Here's another people entirely. What were their reactions? <coughs> was this different? Say, well, uh, there was a whole lot of Americans in Japan at that time. We played a lot of American camps, although they, we did play Japanese theaters and they mixed them. But uh, mostly we played for Americans. Mostly for Americans there. Oh, yeah. I was wondering if the Japanese people's reactions oh, were... Oh, they did, too. The ones same. that came around. Yeah. But we didn't just play for strictly Japanese like we did in, in the African country. Yeah. Not for the people themselves there. Well, yeah. we played the Corpside Theater. Yeah. That's a big African theater. I think it's a question very often asked you, Louis. When you sing a certain song, I don't mean now a blues, but say a pop tune, like uh, A Kiss to Build a Dream On, you make it better than it really is. I mean, you wait. That is, well, what is it? Uh, is, if the lyric is less important than the feeling, the intonation, what you do with no, it? No, the way I feel it. That's what songs should be sung. <laughs> the way I look at it. It doesn't matter what the song is, no matter no. it's a pop tune or whether it's it an authentic you know, blues. Some meaning to every song. Some people get a little too commercial to just hurry and get it over with. You know, and that's why I feel about all songs. Feel it the way you want to do it. And uh, in the olden days, that's where we d delivered songs. And now commercial. Would you mind perhaps just expanding on this just a bit? See, in the olden days, this is the way you delivered songs. It doesn't matter what the song was, that was a challenge to the singer. Well, that's the way everybody did in the olden days. And a little trend now, you know, commercialized. Yeah. It still sounds good. But, um,. I don't know. And I'm thinking, say, you take a, a, a lyric of a song like Blueberry Hill, which is all right. But what mm. you do, you make mm. it better than all right. See, and, I mean, here's a case mm. of the performer who makes it better than originally written. I'm trying to find out what it is that you do your own. That is, you're not worried about the exact word being in a certain place. Well, I feel the song. I feel Throw myself right in. And I guess other people feel the same. But it's very much, very, not very much I can explain now other than I feel what I do, especially music. Same with the horn, you know. People talk, you know, the, the critics speak of a certain uh, innovation of yours when you take a, 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 a pop song, say. It used to be three-part. That is three-part. There was your trumpet. No. The, your original solo on the horn, close to the melody, yet hot. There's your vocal. And you come back in, in a lyrical form. This is basically huh. the wasn't this? You dug it. Uh, what was the? What was the? Uh, would you mind explaining how this came about? How this came well, about? You know, doing? Uh, I used to sing in a quartet as a kid, 13. I mean, early in 13. I used to sing in church, and that's where you can get good feelings of songs in church. From the obvious singers. Today is come from choirs and things. 
perhaps, Louis, you might want to talk a little about this more, the church feeling mm-hmm. in jazz, the church feeling. That is the feeling of, of call and response, you know, of the preacher yeah, and the congregation. Well, I named myself up that came to the church. That's why they got that, that feeling inside, you know. So, and uh, if somebody's serious about the music and we're seeing them, it's no problem. You know, something I never worry about a song that I don't sing. Yeah, somebody else might worry about it and probably get as much out of it. It doesn't matter. Even say, even if you sing, let's say you sing a spiritual. Uh, this is not sacrilegious because if you sing this, it still has that feeling of reverence for it, even though it has a different yeah. uh, jazz feeling. Shadrach. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you did. Mm-hmm. I made an album, nothing yes. but spirituals. A lot of people wondered why I could jump to jazz, from jazz to spirituals. Am I talking loud enough? That's fine. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I don't want to scream, you know. I thought you were talking about. You know, God asked me in Europe, how can you do that? To, you play Dixler, the jazz, and you take an album like the good book and you sing all spirituals. I say, well, whatever song I'm singing, if it's a spiritual, I'm in the spiritual field, that's all. Because, I mean, in church, we did the same thing. At One a funeral, a wake, we do all the same. One came from the other, didn't it? Pretty much. Well, I mean, it's it in your soul. Yes. There's no problem. So when you played in the street bands as a small boy in New Orleans, yeah, you know. So. We played a few of the marches, going to the cemetery. You see those cards in front of your heart, the, the notes are there. And it's up to you to express yourself as you play. And take the next cards, Dinner Ramble, the Saints. See, it's two feelings you have there. And yeah, you, you, you learn how to read the notes, but you don't know how to you don't learn how to express them. The notes is just but one. You say two feelings, no. two feelings. Notes is good for to learn you to tune, but um, it's up to you to phrase right. <laughs> That's really it. So there's something beyond the notes. This is what, of course, you taught so mm-hmm. many of the younger musicians. But you're feeling it in your heart. What were you doing? Well, this feeling, was this always when you were a very small boy, even before you went to the Wave School? We did the same thing when we sang in a quartet. All four of us. When you and the kids on the street? No, I'm a kid. Pass the hat. That was a feeling. <laughs> Hear the coin jingle. <laughs> I suppose even now, after so many years, do you feel the big influence still, Joe Oliver? Was it in the early days he was mm. your big influence, Oliver, of course. But even now, after so many years, you still feel... Well, I feel he's the man that inspired us. What was it he taught you? What was it he said to you? What do you remember well, uh, best that he said to you? He practiced... Well, uh, 
What was it he taught you? What was it he said to you? What do you remember well, uh, best that he said to you? He practically told me everything that was right in music. The uh, first thing he said it was play some lead on that horn, not so many notes. You know, carry a lead. That always stuck with me. Let people know you, what you're playing. You want to break this down just a little? Play some lead, you see. Hey, lead, uh, uh, like, uh, give me a kiss, I was playing something that the people don't understand. That's what he meant by lead. Play something? Lead, yeah. People can understand. Yeah. Now, you can take liberties, of course, great many things yeah, yeah, that you improvise. Keep that lead in there. But not to wander too far away from not the original far, yeah. melody. I thought that was all right. Do you feel that there's, there's too much wandering today? In no. The... I mean, just wander all through the tune and there's no lead at all. Just see how many notes you can make. That's no good. You think there's a great, a great deal of trickery then? That is uh, uh, mm. showmanship and that's all. That's all. And you're going to do that all night. Have to come back to the original spine then, to the mm. original backbone. Mm. Back of to the lead. Yeah. The lead itself. It meant so much when he said that. You say you always stay before the public. And not even now, stay before the public. You know, when you put the horn down, they remember you. Louis, in the 50 years or so of your playing, it's a whole lifetime of playing and influences, I say, worldwide, your name and your and younger musicians. What are the changes you sense in jazz these 50 years? For good or for bad, what is it you sense your own feelings? Well, I don't, I don't know about the, the sense or nothing, but uh, the one that's still playing, he couldn't move him from the style of the days, you know. And there's so many of us around. So we don't bother about the other fella. I mean, it sounds good. It's like a record or album. With two kind of music, good and bad. Yeah, good and bad. Yeah. Not a question of schools or styles, good and bad. Doesn't matter what the style of school no. may be. No, I don't know. Do you find it sounds good or bad albums? So, do you find a good many traditional young musicians today playing traditional? Well, what is uh, traditional and what is modern jazz and what is uh, jazz of tomorrow? Nobody being able to explain it. Label Way out. Oh, I know. I had nobody to tell me nothing. They asked me, I said, well, I'm going to ask you, what is it? And they said, I don't know. I said, how do you expect me to know? You say it doesn't really matter what the, what, what the label is. It's either played well or it's played not too well. That's right. Basically, this is it. I made some uh, I made some albums with Brubeck. You know. His own music. 
which proves we did it. We did it our way. We did it our way, you know. Well, more and more now, I think the State Department and the officials are beginning to realize a little late, but they're beginning to realize the the effect of jazz as a yeah, as a diplomatic that. instrument. They begin to send people down. Yeah. There. Do you do you uh, have any plans for your traveling, perhaps in Eastern Europe? You perhaps someday. To I never know until yeah. then. Would you like the idea of playing, say, in Moscow, Warsaw? Must be possibilities now. I don't have to bet it come back. I go anywhere. Go any place. In in the different countries. day's work. In the different countries you've played, is there one in the different places throughout the world where you've traveled and played? Is there one place that has affected you, impressed you more than others? That their uh, the effect of the music upon them. Uh, I don't know. Ghana was one, and uh, all over in Europe. You know, I went to Europe in 1932. Was it the Palladium in London? Yeah, where and the, the ovation, the people yeah. at the at the stations, airports. I never witnessed such like that. People were so excited in Copenhagen that they give me a, a trumpet of flowers. You know. And he got so excited, the trumpet crumbled up, all the flowers coming, and I run back to the trains. <laughs> so they ain't gonna break my arm. <laughs> Too excited, man. Um, and uh, it's kind of hard to say one place or another. Yeah. Pretty well enthusiastic. You know? Well, people say that your first appearance in London in '32 yeah. never has been a reception such as that. That's right. This was at the Palladium, you know. This, I suppose, is through their hearing the parlophone records, or the records at the time. That's right, yeah, that's what they know. Just the records. Until the day, they you know, will quite naturally get a chance to see all the bands and attractions now. But uh, in the early days, that's the only way they knew you. They knew everything you played. Have you come across any, I'm just wondering, any young musicians in any one of these countries who has impressed you? Any young kid or kids of Well, they, got, uh, they yeah. got some... Good players in in Europe. Yeah. This boy Humphrey Littleton in London is pretty popular. See, and I always went there. Nat Canella was the mm -hmm. big man. He was young then. You know? mm -hmm. mm. Louis, is, is this true or is it just a story invented? You know, when when you first uh, scat sang, you know, and the words that you know, not the words, but uh, the manner what you sing. So many stories are told that uh, it happened accidentally. I you dropped the music? Yeah, well, we used to scat singing in the early days, you know, like instruments in the quartet. And so I just went in there, yeah, you can reach back and pull out one out of the bag, and it's gone up there and did it. So they kept the record. So he called it scat singing. First time I'd heard the word. So was that? Uh, the president, the heebie-jeebies. Heebie-jeebies was the one yeah, with the hot five. Yeah. That was. Then it happened. It was a happy accident. It, yeah. it probably would have happened with you in any case, in some form or other. Well, if, uh, I dropped the music and I looked in the control booth, and he kept saying, "Go ahead, keep singing." <laughs> so I didn't see the words. So I made them own words. <laughs> you it's once used. You once used a phrase: "If you can't sing it, you can't play it." If you can't well, sing it. 
everybody don't play instruments and they sing. I don't know uh, how to tell you about that because I know a lot of musicians can sing their parts, but they're no singers. Like, uh, I want to hum, hum your part to you, you know, in the early days. He'd sing the whole thing. When you put him out there to sing by himself, he'd probably shiver in his boots. <laughs> See what I mean? The instrument then was like his voice. Yeah. And the instrument was an extension. You make the same notes, like his, you know, his horn. That's why we could scat and do things like that. So the phrase used about you is, when you sing, it sounds like your trumpet extended, or when you play the trumpet, it sounds like your yeah, voice. the same notes. Both are an extension of you, then. Yeah, that's what they say. But I mean, uh, I always was sing. I was singing before the blade of horn. See? So, I mean, quite naturally, I could sing the same notes and make on the horn. The early musicians, when you were a small boy, the early musicians who didn't have schooling or training then, when they would play, I suppose, in their own mind, they were singing, too. Was that it? Yeah. Sing your part, you could do that, too. And uh, in the early days, a whole lot of the boys didn't read music, but they had a good mind, we call it a good ear, and they're going to put the parts to the lead. Somebody would buy a piano part. Somebody in the band that could read, like a clarinet player or something like that, you know? And they had some that could read, and they couldn't play as good as uh, the musician that didn't read. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because they just stuck right to the notes all the time. All we wanted to know how it sound. And after the second chorus, we put that piano part down and never look at it again. Remember it. See, good memory. So what was written down was just just a small part of it. What was written down? Wasn't nothing written down. Yeah, that was all. Head, then. Whoever played that yeah. piano lead, maybe the piano. Very few, usually it's a clarinet player, and then later the cornet player. And maybe the trombone could read that part out. Somebody could cipher that, that, that tune, yeah. and everybody would get their parts. So when you played at Lincoln Gardens and with Oliver when you came up in the early 20s, yeah. this was the technique that was used there too then? Yeah, and I played second trumpet to him. I didn't need no music. I just want to know what he's playing. Couldn't nobody uh, touch us because I, I, I was so close to Joe. Till uh, every note he would make, I could put a second to it. Never did even bother me. He just knew it intuitively then. And he'd make a break, like the break is coming up, and he'd make the break while he's, the tune's going on. And we get to that break, I didn't put a second to it. All of the Vicks and all of them used to come in and hear us do that. And they never been a team like that since. That's why I think so much of Joe Oliver and always will. He was the first to use the, the mute, wasn't he? Pretty yeah. Much. yeah. He had a little flat metal mute made by C.G. Cohen. And it's hard to blow in them things. But he got a tone out. <laughs> he used to blow so hard. You know. That mute boy made it sound more like a human voice than mm. the growl. He did. Yeah. He did that as he Couldn't did. nobody else. Yeah. He put it, the mute in, which flat, you know, 
and put his hand over the barrel with that mute. And he could talk it like a baby or anything. <laughs> cry like a woman. Cry like a woman, cry like a <laughs> He could do anything with that one. Now when later <coughs> on though, but what was the change was there a change that took place in your did you have to adjust when you went to Fletcher Henderson in a bigger band? Well we used outright mutes. That was that. Yeah, you had to read music then. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do then? You you yourself? Yeah. Well, no, I didn't ever try yeah. to do what Joe yeah. did on the mute. Couldn't nobody yeah. do with it. No, I mean, when you joined Fletcher Henderson after yeah. you left Oliver, yeah, I joined him. you made adjustments then yourself. Well, I had to get in there with them trumpets. Yeah. Uh, I had the third part. And the first, second, and third. And we had to sound the same. Yeah. See, I'd been reading with Joe then, and, and parades, and brass bands. I mean, it's. Ordinary notes. Sometimes it come pretty hard, you know. Here we are sitting in the Chicago nightclub in 1962. Naturally, your memory now and then goes back to that period when you first came here. How was Chicago then to you, well, that period? The same Chicago, but Is it really? different uh, things happening, you know. They had plenty of nightclubs. I think they had more nightclubs than they had now. I was about the to south say. side was loaded with clubs. And they had clubs on the north side at the same time. And a lot of people would come on the south side, you know. So, they had, uh, had more nightclubs here than they had in New York at that time. And jazz itself then was pretty new. I mean, yeah, it was a new world listening to jazz at the right. time, so I suppose there was this... started about 1918. Thinking about this excitement that was here at the time that may not be here today. Do no, you feel there's less excitement today than there was in? About no, there ain't no excitement now like there in those days. Clean up this town. I mean, you know, for his excitement and things. But, I mean, you can still see a good show or a nightclub. But it ain't like it was in the 20s. I mean, the ruined 20s was something to go. All your big shows just come from New York here. Yeah. And that uh, after our places start at 12 o'clock. There's another aspect of Louis Armstrong. Aside from the musician, there's Armstrong the actor. As the actor. Was it <laughs> well, always. We call that our hustle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Was it always when, when you were. when you sang with the kids on the street, the quartet you had, no. Uh, were you always the actor then, too? Well, get a chance. Okay. We're going to ham it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's about what I do when I ever put the horn down. Just sing and be in a show, do partners. You know, just stay around, show, show business and music. July 4th is coming up, and July 4th is Independence Day and also yeah. your birthday. Right so here. here you are, 62. You've met so many challenges. Mm. Uh, you've faced them all, you met the. What is there one more challenge or a number of you'd like to meet or face? Is there any? What is it you would like to do that you haven't done thus far? Mm -hmm. Right now, I can't say because uh, I'm doing everything I like to do. Yeah. Well, I think it's all right. Everything's all right. Everything's going on all right. <laughs> yeah. In other words, you're a pretty fulfilled man, as we were yeah. reaching for. You're an artist to his re. Mm -hmm. 
There's no new world you, 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 you're, you're looking to. No. Yeah. Well, my age ain't looking for things like that. Just get some wine, live a beautiful life, you know, relax. After 62, you, you don't have too many left, you know. Oh, you got a lot more left. <laughs> Yeah, well, a lot more of the vitality that just watching the show downstairs a full hour of the vitality that indicates that a lot more where that came from. Yeah, pretty long. Well, Louis Armstrong, you, you... They usually do 55 minutes, but we did a while. You've contributed a great deal indeed to, to jazz and to entertainment yeah. in America. And the people appreciate it, you know, they're nice. I'm not going to ask you any more questions, just mm. for you to say anything you care to say that you haven't said thus far here anywhere else that you feel like saying. I well, ain't anything. All I can say is uh, still enjoying my work. And uh, if every band stand up on them one-nighters like we do, we just come from Europe, and uh, we had one day off, and flew down to Chile for the State Department recently. And we had three days off, played one, and uh, some way in New Jersey, and, and come here for two weeks. Oh, so you see, we were kind of busy. So you say you played one night in Chile. Here's what I see. No, we played four days in no, Chile. No, four days, but I mean, say from uh, one city in America somewhere, I mean, you, you suddenly you're in Chile. Now, when you're on that stage, here's an audience, a Chilean audience, or here's a Chicago audience. Is there a way of reacting that's different, or is it exactly no, all over? You 15, find it's 15,000 people standing yeah. in uh, San Diego. And we played there three nights, and then we went to another big town, same. And uh, they react the same as the American audience. Because they know your records and they know the tunes. And you can find some fine combos down there to play. Look at that Russian combo I heard them tonight. They're playing like Brubeck and them boys. Because they've been listening to records, radios, and that. And stills in them. One last question to ask you, Louis Armstrong, at the hour of 2.20 in the morning. And that's this. Here you, you speak of the one-night stands, the night after night at night, all these years of playing, your innovations and all. How are you able to maintain a certain... Well, we get our rest. It's the main thing. Hmm? We get our sleep. And it's the same as that to come here every night. We get there early enough to go to bed. And, you know, sometimes we have to go right on the stage, but you don't do it every night, you know. So we get in there about... 11 o'clock and concert until about 8. You can't gallivant, you got to sleep. No, I mean from the standpoint of the audience. I see you on that stage, audience yeah. says, and they say, that's Louis Armstrong, how yeah. fresh he is, how vital here that's the first right. time. And yet, how are you able to project this when it's night after night after well, night? That's what you go to bed at <laughs> day after day, or, or right after the concert. Or if we get out, we play two and a half hour concert. Probably catch the plane next morning at 8 o'clock. Well, look at the time you got to sleep if you just go on and sleep. See? So let's say it's... So the same as if we was playing here every night. Instead of going home, you go to some other nightclub or something like that.
wears you down. Yeah. So we had to wait for the moments where we have time off to go hear somebody else. In the early days, of course, that was the case when they had... Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Music is music all over the world, the same. And you're wide awake, you know. Most of the time you go some other place, spend a few hours. But the, the time to get up, boys. <laughs> but I mean, we make it somehow. Good yeah. constitution, yeah, good heart, and a sure. good craft, yes. and an artist. Yeah. Certainly the most celebrated in the story of jazz, Louis yeah. Armstrong. Like they say, stay for the public. You got to do it right, else don't do it at all. I guess I can't do it no more. I had a good career, 50 years. Pretty nice. It's more than a good career. It's been a monumental one. Well, I appreciate it, you know. I don't say I'm a player all my life, but if it ever happened, I wouldn't feel sad about it. I'd just go on and get a new life. It'll be around music. So, it's more than teaching the youngsters how to blow or something. You've taught them a great I'll deal. Always sing, get a little part in a show, a movie, or something. There's always something around them around music. I'm at home. I won't worry at all. Louis Armstrong, thank you very much for being the, the artist you are. Well, I'm glad to talk to you. Huh? Okay.